Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Ether is the perfect drug for Las Vegas. In this town, they love a drunk. Fresh meat. Come on, buddy. So they put us through the turnstiles and turned us loose inside. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Dose of Ether. This is your host, Lucian. And this week joining me is Andy Boyan, which our community members on the Slack will recognize. He's a MVP of our community and a good friend for the past couple of years. Hi, Andy. Hey, Lucian. How you doing, man? Good. How are you? How have you I'm been? Doing, really good. doing well? Yeah, I'm doing well. It's a sunny Saturday afternoon, so uh, kids are running around, and I apologize if they come screaming through to any listeners. Oh, no, I'm sure our listeners are already used to that. (laughs) And it's awesome actually talking to you, um, because I feel like we've had so many opportunities and so many conversations in the past couple of years um, because of the Slack, but I realize like we haven't actually talked (laughs) face-to-face or like even like voice-to-voice in well over a year. Yeah, we we met in New York at Consensus last year, and I think that's the last time we've actually physically spoken, Uh, but otherwise, you know, hey, chat works. Yeah, and it's such a weird thing because it feels like it was a lot longer ago, right? Like a year and a half in the crypto space at least makes you feel like you're a veteran because we've experienced multiple booms and bust cycles already. We've uh, yeah, yeah, in just two years. <laughs> like the just the number of uh, criminal investigations that have sprung up post ICO craze since then. It's uh, it's been hard to keep up to everything, but it's the landscape has changed. I think the conversational dynamic has changed, and I think the maturity of the space has changed as well. But yeah. before we dive into that, Andy, tell uh, the listeners a little bit about yourself. Oh, yeah. So um, I uh, currently work for a fintech company, a traditional fintech company. We make uh, apps for banks and other you know, money movement sort of technology um, but, uh, before then I came from academia. So, um, uh, I was a professor for about 10 years at a liberal arts college. Um, and I did my PhD at Michigan state university in communication. So I actually come from a communication background and, um, an academic background. And then a- a- after I got tenure, basically I-, I realized, well, I can research whatever I want now. Uh, what's this Bitcoin thing. And, uh, as I dug into it, I, you know, it was, realized that nobody else I knew knew anything about it. And so I was the guy. Um, and so I dove in head first. And before I really got too deep into it, I got hired away at this fintech and um, have been uh, doing that ever since and um, keeping tabs of blockchain and crypto uh, in my spare time, of course, through the Slack and Bitcoin Podcast Network is a major part of that. You basically got hired out of um, a tenured position at a university by one of your students is that correct yeah that's right like well well we it was in whenever whenever it was it was after the big boom of 2017 and so they'd been talking like every company was talking at the time about um you know opening up a sort of blockchain or crypto avenue um and so i did some consulting work for them basically and um 
they just turned that into a position. So um, I, they, they dropped that eventually and are not doing it. But, um, you know, it's been a, a, an amazing experience seeing the difference between academia and industry and uh, how the structures work. And, and it's, it's not like a full startup. It wasn't like five people. It's an early stage. You know, they've been around for six or seven years. They have a profit. They have a really great client list and uh, everything. So um, it, it's been a, a, an adventure, um, puts it very mildly, uh, learning the ropes of industry. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to find a crypto company that can say that they have break even that they have profits and they have clients. Um, I think the combination of all three is extremely rare in the crypto space, um, mainly because the technology is a lot more immature than um, a lot of people who hyped up the technology back like two years ago really wanted to admit. Um, But what is communications like what is the field of study how does it compare to um, communication technology for example so um uh, thank you uh, i find a lot of people have broad experiences with communication especially if you went to college you took a communication class you had to do public speaking or or something um, but our discipline is actually extremely broad and it includes public speaking and presentations. It includes uh, like traditional rhetorical analysis, which is a little bit closer to English and literature analysis. Um, It includes things like media studies, which go into broadcasting and journalism, but also analysis and writing. Um, And then where I come from is a lot closer to psychology. And it's a social scientific tradition where we uh, examine messages and how they're constructed and how they're interpreted. Um, So, you know, we, we deal with a ton of psychological principles and theories and we have a, a lot of crossover there um but but people have such a really broad range that um uh, it, it's hard to kind of put into your mind what i talk about when i'm saying i come from a communication background what i studied was um, uh, communication technologies it is actually related to communication technologies and how those technologies actually um frame the messages that are being sent back and forth so, for instance, like my, my dissertation sort of area and uh, area of study um, uh, through tenure was uh, video games and how do video game mechanics and affordances impact players learning? Like, what do you learn? You got a PhD in studying video games. Awesome. Yeah. Is that yeah. like, is, ah, oh, man, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to basically play this to the next generation just so that they know that dreams are real. <laughs> you know, it, it's one of those things. Uh, I was just talking to my buddy about this is yeah, I, I was so excited to go do it. And then I, I got into it and I was able as a gamer, cause I came up as a gamer, played a lot um, to, to bring a lot of knowledge and understanding of what video games really are to the social science. Cause the social science at the time was all about do video games make people violent? Yes or no. Um, and there was a general understanding in, in society that was yes. And, and that was, that's not what, what the like, research holds up and it's not what it shows. Um, and so that was really exciting to be exposed to. And, and the, but the longer I stayed in there, the more I realized like that conversation keeps coming up. It's been 30 years that conversation's coming up. And so it's getting a little old seeing that. And, um, it's been nice to branch out from video games because the same conversation comes up with every, you know, shooting that we see and all the video game researchers rally and say, 
the same thing. Here's what the actual data shows. It's not a, a big effect. It's a very small effect um, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, unfortunately, that's uh, very relevant. Um, I think that conversation came up within the last two weeks. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I agree. It's the same thing. Um, I remember during like the first couple mass school shootings, I think it was like Columbine or something. They're like, oh no, these guys had Doom video games. I'm like, I do too. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't make me a psychopath. Um, but anyways, it's, uh, man, the video game narrative structure and their ability has just crazy storytelling potential nowadays. It's amazing how effective it is and um, like how much more of an impact uh, a video game has compared to any other form of media. Um, and it it's a very interesting topic, but I'm going to get sidetracked because... Well- yeah, it, go ahead. It, it actually connects very well to um, what we were talking about earlier and what we're going to talk about for this conversation, because um, what, what games have done really well is they have they are interactive. But what that means is, is the parts that the player actually controls and moves are integral to the actual narrative. So the things you do, the acts that you commit are um, they're not necessarily narrative acts. So in, in your, when you're in a game, if you're playing Halo or whatever, you're not shooting a gun. You're pressing a controller in a particular fashion, but it provides this interactive um, connection that helps you learn about like how to work the mechanics of the game and how to build and construct um, a, a series of actions and, and command this technology in a way to make it work the way you want. And so it's this learning procedure about how things are built and how things are learned through technology. And those lead to some really cool outcomes, especially in gaming, that are fun and enjoyable. They lead to flow states and they lead to cool narrative and character interactions as well uh, when you combine those things. And could you essentially get the same type of um, feedback mechanisms and interactions between the economic experiments encased in cryptocurrencies as you would within like a self-contained narrative structure that is a video game? So that's the big question is, um, and, and why I was thinking about this topic, um, is what are the mechanics of crypto? What, what are the mechanics of apps in general is another you know question. And um, that user experience question that comes up a lot when talking about Ethereum, I, I feel like especially, um, is... Uh, really integral to how crypto and how blockchain um, customer facing or client facing or user facing applications are designed. And so, so my answer to your question is maybe um, I don't really know. And I haven't seen a good, great example of it yet. Um, But it seems that the way technology affordances are learned, we should be able to access those and, um, and plan those and design those in a way that, uh, um, lead to a different user experience. That's not just about moving money, but it's about um, you know uh, uh, learning more about how the system works, how blockchain works, or how the financial system works, or how a financial product works, or something like that. Before we delve into the complicated beast that is Ethereum, and specifically the narrative around Ethereum, because I would argue that there still is no consensus regarding it yet. 
let's go to the ultimate meme coin, Bitcoin. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's talk about the memes that surround Bitcoin and how it has a self-contained identity um, within it. it. It basically encapsulates a specific type of economic logic, and it has become the representation of it, something that has become a lot more relevant now than it has uh, even two years ago. Yeah, um, so Bitcoin is really fascinating, especially in the past two years. It's been fascinating to watch and, and see how people are talking about it. So when I came into the space and tried to understand what, what is this, um, I understood Bitcoin to be a currency. It was a money, just like a dollar or a euro. Um, and, and and that's how everything that I saw was framed. And it made sense in that way. So when you listen to people in introductions to Bitcoin, they talk about calorie shells and anything can be money. Therefore, we're going to make this money and you can spend it and you can receive it and you can exchange with it and all of those things. Um, but I think... There's, that's hard to grasp about Bitcoin um, for the average person because uh, of a few different reasons. Um, it, it's not tangible. It is highly divisible. So it, you can break it down into the sats, but even sats are like these incremental tiny things that don't make intuitive sense. Um, and this notion of it as a currency, especially at the value, at a high value that people are encountering it with now, is just really hard for people to process and think about. Um, so, so that metaphor of, of Bitcoin and that, that meme, right, that of understanding it as a currency, um, I, I think people have a really hard time with that. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I, um, I think a lot of people have a hard time with that. So you're saying people have a hard time equating Bitcoin to money or currency. Um, There's probably a difference between money and currency, but... I, I think people really understand Bitcoin as having value. And they don't always understand the why, but they understand that it does because, you know, the general person, they know, you know, you're into crypto, uh, you're the go-to guy. They ask you like, oh, I saw Bitcoin's up, I saw Bitcoin's down. They understand that like, it has some value. And and if it's an average person that knows that it has value and they know you have some, they're curious. They want to know like, how much you got? How much did you get when you got in early? Like, like that. that's part of that question is how much value is associated with it? So people understand that it has value. But I don't think people understand the transactional nature of it. They don't understand that you, why you would um, exchange it for goods or services as an actual currency, a day-to-day -day currency. <laughs> so I think that the digital gold narrative that's come up is really powerful for, for Bitcoin, especially given just you know any exchange, coin market cap that shows you the value of one Bitcoin, that's what people are looking at and understand is like, oh, there's this encapsulated value there. It is some form of storage. Um, value storage. Yeah, and it seems like there's also um, a positive and negative association with this arbitrary value because people, when they first get into the space, almost no one thinks about the total market cap of a coin. And if I hear one more person tell me that Ripple is going to a dollar, I'm going to backhand them. <laughs> you know, like, no. <laughs> Do the math. Take the total amount of Ripple printed, multiply it by a dollar, and then all of a sudden you have one man who owns 
over 900 million dollars uh, 900 <laughs> yeah. billion dollars that's 10 times more than anyways like it's just that kind of like very narrow focus on something that like you create an association right and the association of bitcoin is value because it's been around for 10 years and everyone in the Bitcoin community argues that there's only going to be 21 million of them. So get your limited edition Beanie Baby while you still can afford it because that price is going up. You take Mm -hmm. the total population and you divide 21 million Bitcoins by it. And all of a sudden you have an immense value. And it seems like that very simple narrative has been enough to actually justify to ordinary people the existence of bitcoin yeah you know when i think about um a digital gold narrative and a gold standard like people in the space love thinking about the gold standard uh, we essentially have a bitcoin standard right all every other coin that's ever tokenized and gone through an ico or whatever it is they accept bitcoin for that like the, the, the in implied value or assumed value of Bitcoin's future worth is the rock that all of these other projects are building on, or most of them are, are building on um, in there. So, so not only is there just general buy-in, it's, it's full like monetary buy-in too. Like people just have full faith in, in that system, which, you know, is a, a what is it? Self-fulfilling prophecy because how well all the values in there and it's all based on this core. Therefore it, it works. And um, yeah, I think other people have bought it. People who aren't in the space, they understand at least this core thing of Bitcoin is worth a lot. And I don't know if like, like my friends who aren't into Bitcoin, but they know I am, I don't know if they think Bitcoin's going to go to a million or a hundred thousand or whatever it is. Um, I think they just think it used to be worth nothing and now it's worth $10,000 and it's made a whole bunch of millionaires. That's amazing. Like, I, and I think it stops right there, their consideration of it, it but that's enough. That's enough. That that amount of value um, might be enough for them to understand it in those terms. And that very simple self-contained explanation has been a very effective narrative, right? It's, it's almost to the point in which no one really has to justify the existence of Bitcoin, right? And if anyone tries, they start like doing their intro to cryptography and they talk about distributed decentralized networks and they learn about proof of work but all of that is basically to explain why this digital currency innately has value and is worth at least its current price yeah and that has been a meme (laughs) <laughs> like i I'm, I'm sure you actually have a uh, academic definition for meme but in my opinion it's like it's an idea it's self-contained it's spread like wildfire and it is probably the most ubiquitous and popular idea in all of cryptocurrency and it's almost exclusively well i mean maximalists try to exclusively associate it with bitcoin mm-hmm. and it's been effective and quite powerful and it's something that i would argue every other token needs to do but they need to do in their own sense 
Yeah, um, there's not a great definition of uh, academic definition of meme, actually. A former student of mine was going to do her thesis on it. Uh, she's in the Slack sometimes, actually, um, and had a really hard time. There's not, there wasn't at the time a lot of good study around that. So your definition is perfectly acceptable. And um, but you know, right, it's this core idea that just uh, resonates and um, and people understand and can cling to, and that is for for Bitcoin. Um, for the other tokens, you know, like. I think you brought up Ripple. I think Ripple it has a really clear um, value proposition that they are trying to set up and send out and try to make that happen. Um, and they've got, of course, you know, buckets and gobs and oceans of money behind it to to try and reinforce that. Um, but it's it's still very it's just really difficult to make virality happen to make memes actually happen. It's it's organic um, almost. Uh, but yeah, I, I think a lot of tokens are just missing a lot of that. Like, what's the difference between new token X and old token Y? It's really hard to see. And now let's transition into talking about Ethereum. There's a lot of attempts to associate a core meaning to what Ethereum is, right? Um Andreas did a pretty good example saying that if Bitcoin is gold, Ethereum is gas or oil mm-hmm. right um but one of the difficulties that i've noticed with this analogy is that people don't intuitively associate uh cost to computation the way it does in ethereum mm-hmm. yeah i saw an argument a couple months ago on Twitter. i don't know who it was but people were arguing about what ethereum is and, and one side was just vehemently arguing that eth is money it is money and I can see that perspective from Ethereum and that the money is what is required to make the things work, right? To put in the computation, to, to, to make the system go. Um, but that metaphor isn't what, that's not how money works. That's not how currency works. Like in the same way, it, you use a currency to plug a machine in and turn it on. It's, it's not quite the same because the ETH itself is a, a part of that system in a, in a different way to me. So it's just not an intuitive metaphor. And it's also not a useful metaphor either, because currency is a means to an end, not an end unto itself, like gold is, mm-hmm. right? And then I heard people say that ETH is programmable money. Well, great, but what's that? Because normal money doesn't have the ability to be programmed, and that's why we have Ethereum. <laughs> so... Either you create a self-contained set of meanings that actually work and resonate with people, or you actually have to find a new one that does. And I feel like the Ethereum community has been really, really successful in convincing developers because of the idea that gas, in terms of computational cost, makes a lot of sense for developers right? There's not a single computer scientist in the world that doesn't understand what computational complexity is or mm-hmm. what it takes to actually do a actual computation on hardware. People just mm-hmm. assume it's unlimited and it grows exponentially and Moore's law doubles the capacity of um, transistors and the cost of it goes by half every 18 months. But Ethereum absolutely cannot scale that fast or that well. So it is actually a bad association because computation goes down in value, 
gold goes up in value in the case of hyperinflation, not like the last 10 years. But that's the kind of problem with having a meme that doesn't directly it doesn't help anyone besides a narrow subsect and the proof is in the pudding ethereum has a lot more developers working in its ecosystem but it has had a major difficulty in having a cohesive message that resonates with customers users and this bleeds into ui right and something that you mentioned before is great essentially that you can't have a good UI if you can't properly tell the narrative of why someone is actually there in the first place, mm-hmm. right? And you gave um, one example in which this isn't the case within the Ethereum ecosystem, and it's like the hottest thing in cryptocurrency since sliced bread at the moment, which is DeFi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, oh, you, I got a lot to unpack from what you just said there. Sorry, um, I talked too much and I basically undercut some of the messages that you told me. So credit <laughs> to these ideas, go to Andy. <laughs> no, 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 these discussions, right, things come from discussion and, and thought, so, so that's okay. So um, uh, this idea of ETH not having Ethereum, not having a coherent message, um, I think it has two audiences that that it's really good at talking to um well one audience that it's good at talking to the developers and then another audience that it needs um and but just because of the nature of distributed systems and cryptocurrencies um the value of these currencies are based on speculation speculation from people who may or may not be you know different levels of involvement um uh, the problem is in order to give ethereum the value that people want it to have more, right, higher, so that they can pay their teams and they can give out their grants and they can, you know, build on top of the, the system is not only do the developers need to be convinced, but the average Joe and Grandma Jane also need to be convinced to add ETH to their portfolio and to be as curious about it as they do Bitcoin. And that discussion of ETH as money doesn't make as much sense to people as, as Bitcoin is money. Uh, I, I don't think it, um, it does. No, mainly because Ethereum can never take the mantle of um, like Hayek and this type of monetarist economic policy that um, like the author of the Bitcoin standard have already attributed to Bitcoin. And I don't think the Ethereum community really wants that. Mainly, I've gotten the feeling that people in the ethereum community are a little bit reticent to go in this direction um, mainly because they tend to think that economics is a lot more complicated than if you have sound money then all of the world's problems are fixed mm-hmm. right um, if you have we had sound money and we had the gold standard for a number of years including in the great depression just saying um, but it's one of these things in which like the narrative of well it's complicated isn't as appealing as a silver bullet that 
ends everything from income inequality to the problems of major mega banks being too big to fail to like all of these larger economic problems it's not it, it's harder to say like hey we're eventually going to develop businesses that can outcompete these uh industries outright rather than let's overthrow the financial system by undoing the damages of central banks, right? Like one narrative has a certain level of complexity. Another narrative is simple. It's direct, but it's also a little bit of wishful thinking. Yeah, I agree. You know, honestly, the past, especially a year, I feel like that's been seen more in the community, in crypto in general, of that, like, oh, things are more complicated than we realized. Oh, it's, you know, take a step back and, you know, just seeing the amount of um, traditional players invest, uh, financial players invest in uh, crypto, then it's like, oh, we're not overthrowing the financial system because the financial system is investing in us. What Like just that level of complexity is suddenly making everybody kind of, okay, um, how do we deal with this new information now? So so that's the truth of the matter is the world is complex and complex things are interesting, but they're hard. Um, And... Uh, and that, that's a, but that's a problem, right? It's a problem for metaphors. Is how do you distill hard things down into simple things? And so, you brought you brought up DeFi, and, and I think um, DeFi is like a, a way of thinking about money and programming uh, applications that people can access that start to bring some of that um, understandable metaphor in in the financial process to crypto. And so I, I'm really actually bullish on. Um, DeFi in general, because um, because of the power it has to communicate with audiences outside of developers and technologists and nerds. Yeah, I um, I agree with you. I'm very optimistic in DeFi. I it stands for decentralized finance. It is a very interesting experiment, and I think that the projects and the companies that have come out that are doing it are doing what blockchain was meant to. They're meant to be micro experiments in self-contained economies in which if the incentives are coded properly, then you can have people interacting in a way with less barriers to entry and you basically have an open access, unlimited and transparent financial system that is governed by programmable rules, right? Like, I think we all would love an economy that is programmatically fair for everyone who participates. Um, my main reservation with DeFi is that technically, I don't even know if DeFi is technically finance. And I argue this, that you can't actually give real loans with cryptocurrencies because you always need over collateralized loans. Mm. So if you borrow something in which you provide more collateral than um, you're actually borrowing, technically you're not borrowing, (laughs) right? Right. Uh, Technically you're rehypothecating. And in a sense, I do think that that in and of itself is a fundamental limit to the scalability and the applicability of decentralized finance. But 
I also think that it is a temporary measure until we can actually bring more of the real world into a legally enforceable representation on the blockchain itself, right? So if we could have oracles that could properly like represent the value of a security, an asset, something like that with real tangible value and enforceable rights within the real world and we could have a kind of system in which smart contracts are effectively enforceable contracts i think then all bets are off and my one reservation the fact that you can't actually borrow money um unless you basically deposit more than its current value in cryptocurrency is done away because Mm -hmm. You have other assets besides just pure cryptocurrencies that you could put as collateral. And I think that would be completely revolutionary. So I'm going to play a terrible card here. I'm really sorry to Lucian, and I'm really sorry to the entire audience listening because this is why you're going to hate communication people. Is I really don't care how it works. I do, but for the, for the purposes of DeFi and what we're thinking about, the metaphor of DeFi, the term of DeFi, and the vision of DeFi, that, that's something that people can grab onto and understand and meme very easily. And if that meme means something that's pretty loose right now, that, oh, you can borrow and then you can't really borrow, I think that it still has a lot more power than programmable money. Uh, and, and it's something that people can access and um, run with, and I can tell my friends about it. And, and uh, have that make sense as the next step, um, right? We could talk about Bitcoin and then we could talk about DeFi. And that is a logical, more logical next step to me to talking about um, crypto outside of developer circles. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I think there needs to be a lot more work done to actually do real loan and finance and, and make that work. Um, but for the purposes of learning about uh, and making a narrative about cryptocurrencies and blockchains and what they can do, DeFi is a really, really powerful um, tool. You're right. You called me out. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Because I just fell into the typical like you, blockchain you developer, developer trap. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and this, that's okay, right? And I'm glad you're thinking about it. People need to think about that. And, and it's critically important to make it all work. But a lot of times developers forget about... Um, how other people, non-developers, think. And getting my mom to think about, she's not going to care. She doesn't care about any of it. Um, no, but when I explain Bitcoin to people, I do it in three sentences. And uh, I, I make it really very simple and really straightforward, and people understand it, and they don't care about proof of work at all, and they don't care about hash power, and they don't care about anything. Uh, they don't care about Byzantine fault tolerance at all. They just care about, like, these basic core ideas. And if you can distill that down, that's how we start to get people involved in the system. So maybe decentralized finance, the meme just means giving people access to money. And it doesn't mean having a fully collateralized loan from yada, 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 all the things you said. It just means giving more people access to money. And and that's not finance. You're right. But now I'm talking about communication. I'm talking about how people learn and come to understand ideas and build them out in their own cognitive structures and that's just a very different um different thing yeah i think the largest risk of um ethereum startups currently is something that i learned on my own skin but um i overlook it's building something that 
no one needs or no one knows that they need. And that's exactly what I'm saying. Like the meme itself of decentralized finance makes sense and it has taken off because it intuitively clicks with people. And yeah, people love to have a uh, tradable asset that correlates exactly with the price of the South Korean won, right? Like, and they want to do it without having to interact with a financial institution that takes their uh, iris scans as KYC. Mm-hmm. And these things intuitively and implicitly make sense to people. And that's why it as a meme has taken off. And it's also a really good reason why Ethereum itself isn't winning a meme war because it's not as simple. Yes, it does make things like decentralized finance possible, right? But people don't intuitively understand the fact that like the conversation going around Ethereum is heavily focused on optimizations and engineering problems when the real selling point is the fact that you have near unlimited abilities to program anything, money, yeah, human interactions, um, business processes on top of a highly secure distributed global blockchain network and you can do it quickly and you can get it in the hands of people. That's not... That's another meme that is developer focused, that's too in the weeds, and that people can't really connect to immediate tangible value like exposure to the South Korean won in like five minutes, you know? Hey, let me give you an example. Um, I love listening to developers rant about the cloud. Developers hate the term of the cloud. That doesn't mean anything, right? But that's how people understand tech stacks, the technology stack of whatever is a server on the internet somewhere. And, and everything that goes behind that, that's the cloud. It's been distilled into two words by fantastic marketing. That's how people understand the internet, the technology behind the entire internet is those two words. And th- that's not useful for a developer to think about things in terms of like a magic cloud where things are, but people don't really know and they don't care. And they don't need to know in order to use what they really want to use and to make things accessible uh, for them. Uh, this metaphor is it's, it's brilliant. I don't remember who came up with it, probably IBM, um, but maybe Google, I can't remember. Do you remember? It was, no. a few years. It was like 2005. Is it the cloud is someone else's computer? <laughs> Because we're we're already post cloud in which we started like trying to knock down the meme. <laughs> There's um, I I remember there being commercials and they were like Super Bowl commercials. There were major commercials and it was probably the mid two thousands and we were starting to talk about the cloud when you know Gmail started to come up and um, you know Google Drive and Dropbox really made a hit. It was it was right in that era when people. Um, the technology companies uh, realized like we've got to figure out a way to explain this and somebody just did it and coined this term and whoever invented that you're a genius um, I'm mark- I have all my marketing envy um, pointed in your direction but that's the kind of you know metaphor and understanding that if you want to get real adoption we're going to have to figure out that that's the key 
what is that metaphor for the decentralized finance world, for, for Ethereum, for e Bitcoin has that, right? That, that's what Bitcoin is. It's what's digital gold. That's easy. You can grab it, you can get some, and that's it. You hold on to it. That's what you do with gold. You don't spend it. You just hang on. Um, you spend it if you need to, right? You can rely on it in that way. It's also really convenient that you couldn't spend it if you wanted to because the throughput is too low for everyone to use it at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was uh, an interview on hashing it out uh, with Vinay Gupta um, this week. And um, Vinay Gupta started, was the former project manager of Ethereum when it was first being developed. And he started a company and he, he started the company basically with a meme. And he goes, well, if Bitcoin is the world's central bank, we're going to be the Supreme Court. And I really liked that because he was essentially saying that smart contracts, if they could actually be arbitrated in real courts, and have legal representation, then you would implicitly have a more uh, value associated with them. Um, and I really liked that meme. And I don't think that we are quite there yet. It's it's a little too ambitious to be the world Supreme Court. Um, but it's a, a meme that, like, at least it has some meaning, right? You can attach, uh, at least tell a story. At, at the core, you can tell a story to your first 10 employees. Oh, that, for sure. I mean, I, I instantly yeah. got what he was trying to say. It's like, let's make smart contracts actual contracts. So let's make it like the ultimate source of truth and have it cryptographically verified. And I'm like, I get it. It was it was quick. It was easy. And so yeah. I'm, I'm just looking through top 10 market cap on coin cap on my app and thinking about do any of these coins have a or which of these coins have a really clear understandable metaphor and uh, you know I, I think i'm going to be torn down from the internet for saying this but i think that xrp has a pretty clear one um, and the people who invest in that coin um, have at least a vision for it that is really consistent and that is um, get a piece of the uh, international fx market you can have a piece of it if you have XRP, then the value goes up, then you get a piece of all the transactions that happen on international effects. Right. Um, they they want to be Western Union on blockchain. Basically, that's like their meme. <laughs> yeah. That, and, 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 and that's their website. That's their business model. That's what their sales, you know, um, division and biz dev is. Uh, and you, anybody can get a piece of that coin and it'll hypothetically go up and, uh, and you'll get a piece of that. Yeah. Or Binance coin is... I think uh, really similar as well, BNB, which is, um, uh, well, what's the, what's the metaphor? It's like the gas for the world's largest exchange, basically. Yeah, right? it, it's like the same reason that Starbucks has the most popular digital currency, right? It's because it instantly has something that you can exchange for in return for something that you value. Right? It's, a brand, it's a brand association, which is a narrative association. Yes, like, and, and it has a product, and the product happens to be a centralized exchange, and what you're essentially buying is discounted trades. But I honestly think that the value of BNB is more than that because Binance has just grown so fast in terms of market cap 
that it's essentially a way for um, for people to buy into the exchange itself as like a company, right? So I'm on the verge of calling it owning shares in the company. That's not the case. So, but but it feels like that. And it that's what feels, feels like, like it. Yeah. Well, now now let's look at these two examples. The rest, it, it's I think it's more ambiguous. But these two examples, they're more centralized. They have a branding team. They have a core message, and they've got money behind them to push out that narrative. Uh, Bitcoin, it has. Uh, first mover advantage, basically, is why I think they have a, a clear message or clearer message. Um, and they just have, you know, straight branding and brand recognition. Everything else suffers from being relatively distributed. Like, that that's a problem is it's hard. It's hard to do distributed stuff. And, you know, you, you can't do a git commit that everybody agrees to on how you're going to frame the narrative of Ethereum for the next 10 years. Like, there's just it doesn't work that way. The funny thing was like, okay, what's Ethereum's brand? The first thing that comes to mind is a unicorn. That's not good. (laughs) It's a mythical animal that doesn't exist. That is not a brand association or a simple value proposition. That's just kind of a random meme. (laughs) Yeah. Um, A unicorn is also the logo of DevCon. So (laughs) it's... It just happens to be part of the meme culture, but at the same time, it's not. Yeah, it. Some some people actually argue that the decentralized nature of Ethereum means that everyone goes into that community and they make of it what they want. Right. So, like, people attribute and associate an identity to it, basically by joining the community, participating, trying to find a way to become self-sustaining, um, which a lot of people did through ICOs, but there's other ways, like you basically can get a job as a developer within the Ethereum community, which is incredibly rare, and I doubt it's possible in any other major cryptocurrency besides working directly for that cryptocurrency. Um, and once people go into this space, like, I know a bunch of startups within the Ethereum ecosystem, and they don't use Ethereum. They don't need the Ethereum network, but they are very integrated and integral into the Ethereum ecosystem because they need the developers to learn their technology stack and incorporate them. And they share a general ideology and vision, which is very loosely defined, and it's more experiential than it is... um, explicit Mm. and it also kind of like it's kind of weird but it's i would say that the bitcoin community is a lot more self-excluding than the ethereum community because of maximalism right and like i don't particularly i i'm not that convinced by the narrative and the fact that there are people within the Bitcoin community that intentionally try to repel any type of like open discussion that questions this core ideology. Yes, it helps the meme, but no, is it interesting from like an interpersonal like relation to actually get involved and implicate myself within mm-hmm. this monoculture? Yeah. You know? Uh, that- and 
it might it's kind of weird that we've been talking about how ethereum lacks a monoculture or a meme that propels it but at the same time i don't know if i would have like fit in to the ethereum community if it did ethereum maybe doesn't need to have a core narrative um, we've said it doesn't. It's kind of clear for developers and maybe training wheels for developers for blockchain in general. And that includes the community narrative of welcome anybody and teach. Maybe that is it. Um, maybe it's not explicitly defined because there's a lot of different people who want it to be something else for themselves or they made a lot of money on it and that's how they're funding their project, their dream or whatever it happens to be. Um, but it's possible that, you know, maybe it doesn't need a core narrative and that's part of the decentralized revolution is that we're not used to that. We're used to a core narrative for our brand in the past 50 years, right? We know what McDonald's is. We know what Walmart is. We have a really clear understanding of brands and what they mean. Um, and it's hard to do that. And maybe it, we don't need to do that with uh, a distributed technology. I, I don't know. Um, that's a yeah. really fascinating question. And it's also one of these things in which like there is well, there is consensus. Consensus is huge, but it's also kind of amorphous. And I, I, I don't know how I really feel about that organization because it's like an organization that's trying really hard not to be an institution. And then you contrast it to Blockstream, right? And like Blockstream has a very clear hierarchy. Yeah. <laughs> and consensus does have a hierarchy but it is very unclear <laughs> and that's neither a compliment or a criticism to either of those organizations which i respect deeply but at the same time it's a very good example of how to uh, create a institutional uh, comparison between bitcoin and ethereum right like just look at these two major institutions that have more than a hundred employees that have like a huge level of responsibility put upon them from the ecosystem and just look how they've formed mm -hmm. and what they've done. Right. And how they interact with their employees. Like consensus is very famous for helping their best developers spin off spokes as they would call them but i would call them like independent self-sustaining and completely self-organized companies mm -hmm. um and that's really cool and that might be like i mean i wish there was a meme that was like hey do you want to like start a tech company but you don't want to go through like the silicon valley vc cycle and you want to retain full control and ownership and you want to be directly engaged with a network and a community of your customers in a way that is literally impossible with an investment structure well try ethereum <laughs> you know ethereum has had a lot of criticism from 2017 for that very thing for the ico boom all those tokens, not all of them, but most of those tokens are on Ethereum. And to me, it's really hard to separate those two things is, is the ability to do that. That is decentralized finance to me is, is you're giving people, maybe they're VCs, maybe they're developers, somebody with an idea, access to capital in a different way. And, you know, there's a lot of scams that came with that. And there's a lot of, you know, really tricky compliance ground and regulatory ground that comes with that. But that's 
that is part of that killer app to me. That's why people flock to it is, well, I can spin up my own idea and I can fund it for whatever it is and anybody can buy in um, or anybody who's not a U.S. or Chinese citizen can buy in. Um, well, anyone can buy in. I mean, like, let's be honest, if you have access to a cryptocurrency and you publicly list a cryptocurrency, regardless of the regulation, you can. It's just that you legally shouldn't, I would say. And the thing is, is that if you create unstoppable money, then you can't stop bad things from happening on that platform. And it's not the platform's responsibility to stop these, which is like, Ethereum isn't Facebook. Like they can't, you can't send a cease and desist letter to Ethereum and be like, hey, I don't like crypto kitties because they're infringing on the Beanie Babies patent. You know, like, no, there's, you really can't, uh, you can't take these down. You can definitely try to investigate, enforce, and shut down fraud, which I'm okay with. Um, But at the same time, you already have this uh, ecosystem in which you can do all of these things. It's just that now people are like, you can, but you really shouldn't. <laughs> you know you know what the meme is? It's, um, it's gremlins. You've got Ethereum and Ethereum is gizmo. But then gizmo accidentally got wet in 2017. <laughs> and all these tokens pop, 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 pop. And then, you know, some of them ate food after midnight and it all went to hell from there. <laughs> but at the same time like out of all of those things i love how many people and like the developers that have been able to take a passion project and turn it into a full-blown career has been awesome right and there's some examples in which there some of these were like just one developer who worked really really hard on improving one facet and i'm thinking of uniswap specifically right? Because it was very public. He shared all of his code. He took feedback. He basically like tested all of his stuff with the community. He started at a hackathon and then he just kept working on it and working on it and working on it and improving it. And all of a sudden he's the second or third largest decentralized exchange in terms of volume. And it's like, exactly right. Like that is the definition of a free market with very little barrier to entry and people within the ethereum ecosystem can transition from one decentralized exchange to another with almost no cost and yeah that's it's hard right because one of those decentralized exchanges definitely did an ico (laughs) yeah and they definitely have a lot more funding than he does I mean, whether he ICO'd or not, I don't think he did. I actually think he closed a private funding round. It mainly was more of a representation of when he did the funding round, right? Because like post mid 2017, it was no longer the Wild West. It was already after Silicon Valley did their own ICO. Like it wasn't like the cool new thing to do, right? It was already, it was already being looked down upon and it was already more of a, um, of a contingency than a benefit. Um, but at the same time, it is very difficult to separate Ethereum from, uh, from that and from other economic and social experiments like that. And, 
yeah, who knows? Maybe the next ICO boom will be with regulated securities. Mm-hmm. I don't know about that. Like, maybe it will. I, I'm not convinced. Um, but I do think that, like, the meme is a free-for-all in terms of financial um, financial inclusion and experimentation let's do something difficult let's let's try just throw out ideas of the meme that ethereum will become like the way like hard money became for bitcoin (laughs) it's a tough one but i think i think you have some good ideas like what's the meme that uh that ethereum is eventually going to just be associated with it could be like the cloud the cloud for money or something like that. You know, it could go so many different ways and um, I don't, I'm not going to make any predictions. But here's what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask um, developers and people who are starting projects and or considering starting projects or building is just to think about the narrative. Think about the narrative that your coin or that your um, technology is... Um, uh, it, is trying to tell, right? It's a story that is trying to tell and what kind of people are going to be interested in that story and then keep writing that story for those people. Um, and a lot of times, you know, the people who make the technology, they're the target demo, right? You're building it for yourself because you want to see a particular thing happen. Um, but you're not the only person in that demo. You're not the only person that's going to use that. And people interpret things in, in tons of different ways. And so, um, you know, it, it's just some of these principles about learning and how people come to understand um, the world that, that's not through textbook or, you know, um, you know, traditional means. It's just about storytelling and branding and naming and all those things. And, and I think that that's often missed um, uh, when developers get together and go down your rabbit holes. Um, but the, uh, on the flip side, don't let us storytellers try and take over either, right? We need to be grounded in reality as well uh, for part of that. That's, uh, that's a really really good way to wrap this up and um yeah it's it's important the same way that a developer you beta test your product and your website and the way you collect feedback on your click-through rates on your front-end application you gotta beta test your story you gotta beta test the narrative and every company every product and service needs to justify its existence and if you can't do that to the audience that you think will join your platform you're gonna have a bad time (laughs) (laughs) gonna have a bad time awesome thanks andy it was uh great talking to you I love talking about this stuff. I love talking about the narratives and stories and metaphors. And uh, I'm in the Slack almost all the time. So, uh, and I'm on the Twitters. So you can find me, Andy Boyan, A-N-D-Y-B-O-Y-A-N. Shout at me and tell me how wrong I was or um, anything like that. I'm happy to chat. Awesome. Yes, please join us on the Slack. And thanks for listening. See ya.